It is a hard thing for us to put into words what exactly we want from Christ, isn't it? Some, sometimes it seems like an easy thing. What kind of request do we make? What kind of request do we make? We want the joy of our salvation, yes? We want the blessings of life eternal. Hopes that don't disappoint. Because we live in a world that's filled with hopes that constantly disappoint. Salvation. I mean, his very name, Jesus, means Savior. Emmanuel. God is with us. And what is the effect of God with us but that he saves his people from their sins? It's one of the most tremendous promises that we come to Christmas season to and realize that the hope of Christmas really has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with the fact that God is finally with his people. That promise was on the lips of Gabriel when he tells them, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice it doesn't say he will try. Notice it doesn't say he will help them so that they can save themselves. Notice it doesn't say that he will enable them to be better people. He will, inevitability, he will save his people from their sins. Nothing is going to stop that. Nothing is going to interrupt it. Nothing is going to slow it down. And Christian, let us push our pride down. Nothing can speed it up. Christ will have salvation for his people no matter what we prefer. And if we're honest with ourselves before we came to Christ, we wanted things of Christ that he wasn't offering. Perhaps you came to Christ because you thought that following Christ would be an easier life than not following Christ. We're not promised that in Scripture. Perhaps someone told you that if you follow Christ, you'll be healthy, or you'll be wealthy, or you'll be wise. The prosperity gospel being one of the most elusive heresies of our day brings people to a concept of Christ while not actually delivering on the salvation of Christ. Instead, promising that here's a good set of rules to live by, or here's some good outcomes you can expect because Jesus blesses his people with material things. My friends, that's not the point. Sometimes Christians are blessed with material things. Sometimes they are blessed with health. Sometimes Christians are actually wise people. But as we are reminded throughout the Gospels and throughout the Epistles, The majority of the time, Christians are not healthy. The majority of time, and if you know anything about church history, Christians are not wealthy. And if you know the end of all of our roads, at all points, we will never end up healthy. We will all of us meet our end. And if you see 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it reminds us not many Christians are wise. The gospel continually comes back and surprises us about what it is we should want from Christ. And it doesn't match up with our natural desires. And that's one of the great miracles of the scriptures, is they constantly realign our desires with God's. Most of you know this miraculous sign in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, but I wonder if you've ever seen the results of it. 
One of the reasons we know this miracle so much is that it is the only miracle told in all four Gospels. No other miracle has that position. It's kind of unique. The feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men besides women and children. Most likely somewhere around 20 or 25,000 people. This is a unique miracle because it has a great deal of uh, issues with it, a great deal of things that are met. You have bread that is miraculous. You have fish that are multiplied. You have people that are fed. And then you have Jesus almost being made king. A part that was left out of my Sunday school lessons. And him leaving all of them because he refused to have that kind of glory. And so I want us to realign ourselves. I want you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read marvelous passage. John chapter 6 verses 1 through 15. After this, meaning after everything that we've just gone through, the witnesses to Christ and all. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I love those side notes that John puts in. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fishes. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, also, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed, now notice what they recognize him as, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful. We give thanks to you for Christ, who is himself the bread of heaven. And just as he gave thanks for bread, Father, we give thanks for him. We thank you for your word. Also, the food that your people are meant to live upon. We know that we cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Father, we desire sustenance for our lives, sustenance for our souls. And we come to your word as servants for this. We thank you, Father, for the fellowship of Christians, that we may hold each other to your word not to our preferences or our desires, which are so often aberrant and conflicting. But, Father, that we come to your word boldly, that we come as servants, and that we come looking for grace and mercy. We thank you, Father, for the right that we have to be called your children, that it is a right that none can take away. 
We thank you, Father, for these things in your Son's name. We pray that just as your Spirit inspired these words so many years ago, this morning, illumine our hearts that we may desire what you desire. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. You may have a seat. John chapter 6. Now, if you know anything about John chapter 6, you know that we're in for a bit of a ride because John 6 is the place where a lot of people look at Jesus and assume that his personality might be called into question. A lot of people will look at the way that Jesus talks to the crowds in John chapter 6, especially the second half, and say, I don't understand. You lost all of them. You had, he had such a great opportunity to slowly bring people into the kingdom, but instead he gives them one of the harshest teachings about he is the bread of heaven. Unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no part in him. And these 20, 25,000 people all left him by the end of this chapter. I'm giving away the end of the chapter because it gives us dimension to understand what Jesus is anticipating in the days to come. Our desires naturally are for self-glory. Let's start there. Our natural desire is to glorify ourselves. That is not because God created us that way. That is because we have chosen our own way and left behind the promise of God Almighty. When we were originally created, we were meant in innocence to live in the garden, provided for by God, glorying in God, and serving him with our whole hearts. But instead, God who made man upright, man has chosen his own way. And his own way was not to glorify God for being God, but to say, I would desire to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I can be like God. I want to know good and evil. I can make healthy decisions between what is right and what is wrong. I don't have to depend on God's instruction. That was the great tragedy of the fall. We thought that we could take knowledge of good and evil and hold it without it destroying us. But what do we know? It has destroyed us. And we are bouncing around the dark, trying to make sense of a world that was created for somebody that glorifies God, and yet all we can think about, all we can think about, is to glory ourselves. To please ourselves. To seek that we be blessed. To seek that we are respected. The Westminster Catechism, perhaps one of the greatest documents written by humans, fallible humans, still one of the greatest documents ever written. Very first question. Some of you will know the answer to this. If you know the answer to it, I appreciate you. First question. What is the chief end of man? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what we are created for. It goes on to express the reality that so many things have pulled us away from this natural thing we were made to do, where nature and supernature were overlapped. Now we chose the natural and the death of the supernatural, and so we live natural lives before Christ, dead in trespasses and sins, yes? 
seeking only to glory ourselves. Because the reality of the life lived in presence of God is it seeks his glory because that we know our glory is of no comparison to his. Not whatsoever. It would be like a candle to the light of the sun. And the candle only being lit because the sun is so powerful. Dependent on him are we. And our desires have gone so aberrant to the natural that we miss the supernatural realities of what blessings God is actually giving to his people. So let me get to that. As we come to this story, we're reminded not only of the power of Christ, we're reminded of the weakness of man. We're reminded of our natural desires. We would rather bread than Christ. We would rather an earthly king rather than a heavenly one. We would rather a human Messiah that is a political figure rather than God himself incarnate. And this is evident time and time and time again the way that people respond to the signs of Christ. And it's evident in this morning's passage that their response to free food is Let's make this guy king. Isn't that all we want from our leaders? Free things. Every politician knows it. Every election cycle you hear it. It's been that way forever. It used to be a car in every garage. Before that, it was a chicken in every pot. These, these promises that disappoint. These promises that let us down. But they know that they're hitting a nerve. We want leaders that give us free stuff. And what Jesus said is, that's not who I am. But his signs tend to hint at this. And so it bears for us to look into it. Let's go into it. It's really important. As it starts out here, verse 1, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs. Now we've gone over this multiple times. Following Jesus just because of the signs is a lower rung of acceptance than following him because of the word he preached. There were those in Sychar and in Samaria, including the woman in Samaria, who followed him because of what he said. There were those who were following him because of what he was doing and the sign gifts and the healings. Maybe we can get something out of him. Be honest. If there was the Son of God walking around in deposit and you had an infirmity for your entire life that you would rather him heal in a moment, wouldn't you want that? Those of you who are dealing with chronic conditions, wouldn't you want that? There's nothing wrong with wanting that. What Jesus is going to point out is there's something wrong with only wanting that and only being there for healings. As if that's all that he came here to do. The same thing if somebody's handing out free miraculous bread down the street. Who's going and eating heaven bread? I'm first in line. I bet it tastes amazing. I bet those fish are incredible. You don't have to fish for them. You don't have to bake the bread. You don't have to find the yeast and grind the flour and make it all and mix it and knead it and let it rise and all those things. Free food. I'd want that. Wouldn't you? But if that's all we want, it reveals a problem. And John includes this as one of those sign gifts 
or one of those signs that Christ does that expresses to people, do not come to him just for your natural needs. There are many people who try to follow Christ because they want temporal blessings in this life. Many people who think that this will give us purpose in this life rather than salvation for eternity. And what Christ is saying here is, you're not going to follow me for that. I'm not that kind of king. That's not how it works. But this is what people were coming to him for. They saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so, verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain. There sat down with his disciples. And the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Was at hand. <clears throat> Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd that was coming towards him, Jesus says to Philip, he asks him a question that he knows he cannot, eat, or he cannot answer. Where are these people going to buy bread so that they may eat? This is a deserted location. It's over on the same side of the Gadarenes on the Sea of Galilee. It's not a place where there's a store nearby. doesn't matter if you brought money. You have a feeding people problem. Now, if you know your scriptures, this is not the first time that people following the Lord ended up in a deserted location without stuff to eat. What do you know from the book of Exodus? What did God do in such situations? What did he do when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years? Manna. Every day, except the Sabbath. Double the day before that. Every day, 40 years. Think about that. Think about what that does to a culture. Think about what that does to a worldview, a concept of dependence, even the natural things, on God. We live in a society where we don't have to think about those things. We don't have to really think about the fact that the bread that we buy, a big M over here, used to be wheat in a field over in Illinois. We don't have to think about that. We're so removed from those realities of the natural world that we kind of think, well, I brought the money, I went to the store, I bought this food, and there's almost this disconnect. Why do I have to thank God about that again? There's almost like a disconnect in this, isn't there? Because we get so separated from the realities of how food is. But not so in this culture. This culture they would understand. They came out here to this deserted place. There's no store. There's no place to buy things. You can't grow anything that fast. You didn't bring anything. You don't have any provisions. You're going to go hungry. That's just the end of it. The only one with any sense is this young boy who had some bread and some fish. Not the best of meals, but it'll do in a pinch. And so Jesus asked Philip a question that is not answerable. Specifically, where? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And Philip is flabbergasted because he is addressing the reality that two-thirds of a year's worth of laborious work would not be enough money to pay for a crowd of this size. But Jesus was doing this to test him, for he himself knew what he was doing. Why does John include that, do you think? Why would we include a reference to Philip being asked about these things just to test him? What was the response to be? Because as Philip responds to him, he's just like, where are we going to buy bread? We don't have enough money for that. We don't have 200 days worth of labor of money saved up somewhere in our coffers. It doesn't work like that. Even if there was a place we could buy that much bread, nobody has that much bread. It takes time. It would be more time. We'd have to travel somebody else, somewhere else. We don't and cannot solve that problem. 
I want you to see something that a lot of people miss in this story. John is including this because in reflex, when you learn that Jesus is doing this simply to give this crowd a lesson that he is the true bread from heaven, you should extrapolate out of that. Not only is Christ the fulfillment of the bread provided, but Philip is the picture of us wishing for eternal sustenance and we cannot get it. We are fully dependent on God to provide it. We cannot go out and purchase it. We cannot make it for ourselves. You cannot bring yourself to life. We are fully and utterly dependent on God to raise us from dead and trespasses and sins and to set our feet on the rock and to sustain us. He is the bread from heaven. And so when Jesus is testing Philip, he's saying on the natural side of things, where are we going to get bread? And Philip's like, I've got no answer for you. There's nowhere we can go. Natural bread is too expensive. And what does Jesus do? Natural bread's nothing. Hand me a few loaves. Hand me two fishes. Let me just thank God. You know, it doesn't even say that it just like overflowed. It just says he started breaking it and handing it out. And it just kept going. Isn't that fantastic? And isn't that a marvelous picture of the gospel? It doesn't get diluted as it goes out into the world and into the crowds and into the people. It, it, it isn't a message that gets diluted because it goes beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And here, 2,000 years later, here we are, Gentiles, sitting here talking about the Jewish Messiah and the gospel that he brought us with his word sitting in front of us, undiluted, unmixed, and with full power, the same as it was the day that he spoke it. That is the greatest miracle that Christ is working. And it is shown in the way he carries this out. It is not all present the moment he gives thanks. He still just has a few loaves and fishes. He just starts breaking it and handing it out. And it just doesn't diminish. And it keeps going around. How many? How many? How many? And it keeps going out. Everyone is full. Everyone has too much to eat. And they gather it up. How many basketfuls left? as many disciples as there were pulling the leftovers. Exactly enough. <clears throat> 200 denarii worth of bread, Philip says, is not enough for each of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here. Notice the failure of everybody else to prepare for themselves, by the way. There's just a little boy here which means a boy under 12 years old, who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Sit on that for a second. Realize that the point of this miracle is to show people that Jesus the Christ is the bread from heaven, the one that was foreshadowed in the manna in the wilderness. As you were there on the mountain that day, watching him stand there and give thanks for these things, you realize the size of the world and the amount of sin in it. You could be 
forgiven on some level not to recognize him with any form or comeliness that you would desire him, but instead say, what is one man amongst the entire world? How much salvation could actually be in this man in Palestine? How much could it accomplish? And as it goes forward through sign after sign gift and teaching after teaching, one of the things that John is doing with us is reminding us that just as we see a small meal not enough to quench the hunger for so many, our natural way of looking at Christ is to say, what kind of hope could be in this man? In one message, one gospel. Is there enough for the whole world or just for a few? And we are, we are challenged at the center of who we are to say, who is it that this man is? What kind of bread has come from heaven? What kind of sustenance and what kind of life does he bring about in us? Jesus moves forward with a sign, verse 10. He says, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. We know from the other three Gospels that that was intentionally listed besides the amount of women and children that were there. So getting the picture, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people, even for 12 people to feed, even with unlimited bread and fish. It takes a while feeding 25,000 people. He has them all sit down. Jesus took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. All right. Jesus blesses the bread. He gives it to the disciples. The disciples handed out 25,000 people. An enormous task. What is that but a picture of how the gospel went into the world? The bread of heaven himself came. What is 12 apostles sent ones that are so much in front of so many people? But to hand out this gospel and it goes on further and further and further. Remember, the gospel of John is written well after these events, about 50 years later. And he's reminiscing on the reality that what we have seen in our lifetimes is that the gospel has gone from Christ to his disciples to the whole world. What he's expressing is the same thing here. It is without dilution. It is without a lack of efficacy. The further and further the gospel goes, the more potent the strength of it is. Going everywhere, continuing everywhere. And so when the disciples go to gather up where there's the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost, they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets, that's how many disciples were gathering things, with fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. That's an incredible miracle. It's an incredible miracle because it shows the, the ability of Christ to carry on something that in the natural world we never see. How many of you have seen bread like this multiplying? I've never seen it. Fish? Cooked fish? I mean, it's it's an incredible thing to watch. And it, it does satiate a natural need and desire and appetite that all of us have. All of us have known hunger at times. It's a natural need for us to have fulfilled. Without eating, we don't live. That's what we should be taking from this. 
What about in the spiritual realm? Without Christ, the bread from heaven, we don't live. There is no sustaining of the spiritual life using natural means. Or to put it in the most succinct way that scripture has ever put it, you cannot live on bread alone. It must be that everything that comes from the mouth of God is what sustains us. It is why Christ is called the word of God. It is why the scriptures are called the word of God. It is why these things are expressed to us as food that we should be constantly consuming. One of the reasons I don't do topical sermons, for instance, is because I don't trust my wisdom enough to actually be sustaining food for you. I trust the word of God. And for me, it's much easier not to fall into error when I stay as close to the text as possible. I know my limits. And the last thing I'd ever want to do is try to sustain you with my wisdom rather than what comes from Scripture. And that comes from an idea that there is, it is not that we live not on bread alone, but by everything that comes from really smart people. No. I want you, the people of God, to be face to face with the word of God and Christ himself here in the scriptures. That's why we work on it so hard like this. And the way that Christ talks about this and the way that John expresses his response, go out and gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Nothing. Not the message, not the gospel, not Christ. The response of the crowd in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet that was to come into the world. And here we have another group of people seeing a sign and coming to a conclusion of who is Jesus. Nicodemus did this. We've seen your signs. We know that no man can do these signs unless he comes from God. That's actually not a good conclusion. It's an accurate statement, but it is not enough. The woman from Sychar in John chapter 4 recognized because of his words that he was the Messiah and knew to ask him specific questions and to get answers about the worship of God Almighty. Is it on Mount Gerizim? Is it on Mount Zion? Either here or in Jerusalem? Jesus answers these questions. The blind man knows that Jesus is a good man. Again, not enough. Here, they were able to perceive because of the signs that he is the prophet to come into the world. That is a shorthand for, it can be both, either the Messiah or the forerunner of the Messiah, which was John the Baptist. Either way, most likely they're talking about the Messiah. They're recognizing who he is because of what he's done. Not because of what he is saying. And in the coming passages, he's going to twist all that around on them. And so what is Jesus' response to this? To confirm for them that he is the prophet to come into the world? It seems like the most fruitful evangelistic moment of his ministry yet. 25,000 people or so standing in front of him, recognizing his identity as the prophet, capital P, from God. Wouldn't that be a great opportunity to go, yeah, that's me. Wouldn't it be? Would be. In my thinking, that's exactly what he should have done. Yet another reason 
that you should be glad I am not God. What does he say? Perceiving then that they were about to come and to take him by force and make him king. That's an interesting way to elect someone. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself. Why? What were they looking for? They were looking for somebody that would just give them bread always. Just provide my natural desires. Just guide our country. If you're the Messiah to come into the world, you will be our king. We want you as our political leader. We want you as our overabundant grocery store. We want you as the source of all of our natural desires. We want you to meet all of them. We will put all of our natural desires onto you. Isn't that a good thing? No. If we only come to Christ for the natural desires, blessings and working everything out, making my marriage better, or making my dog healthy, or making me an inch taller, or something like this, we will never want him for what he actually came for. We won't see our need for true salvation because we will be satisfied with meeting natural needs. Make him our king. Give us bread. Make us so that we are comfortable and well off. And isn't that what the prosperity gospel defies about our hearts? Give us a lot of money. Give us health. Give us happy families. Make us joyful. Make our borders exceed. Our bank accounts go up and everything work out well for us. That is an easy message to sell. It's an impossible one to deliver. And many are those who fall into this. And all 25,000 of them fell into it that day. All 5,000 households. And Jesus saw and perceived that they were about to make him king. Because why? They recognized who he was. What is John doing? He's showing us that's not the right response. You may get his identity right, but do not respond and say, how I want to interact with Christ is on my terms and what my desires are. Here's what I want from him. I want to have a happy life. I want to have money. I want to be successful. And I'm just going to pray for blessings. There's entire books written to this end. But the only thing that we have to pray for from God is blessing, and then that will be assured to us. Oh, my friends, suffering is promised to us, not temporal blessings like that. Difficulties are promised to us. And the faithfulness of God to never abandon us in the middle of it, that's what's promised to us. Do not sell, when you are out evangelizing people, do not sell them on a weak, false gospel that merely promises them happy lives. Give them Christ fully as the only answer to their soul's full need. You are dead in trespasses and sins. Christ can make you alive again. Repent from yourself your natural desires that are enough for you and turn to him for those spiritual desires you don't even know yet that you have. Do not live on bread alone. Do not seek to just merely have yourself healed. Seek to have your soul salved in the grace of Christ. 
Do not say, Christian, that you have no sins to confess. You do. Do not hide from our Savior in your shame and in your guilt. Where else will you go for the salve that heals? Do you not know it well? That feeling of shame when you know that what sin you have committed enwraps your mind. You see your weakness on display again and again. And you feel ashamed to go to the throne of grace. Maybe I can fix it myself. Maybe I can live on bread alone. Maybe if I read my Bible enough or talk to people enough or maybe if I'm really good for a week, God will forget about this and all will be well. Friends, the throne of God is called a throne of grace for his people. Do not avoid it. Do not stay away from it. Grace and mercy are found there at time of need. And Christian, the more you go in Christ, the more you realize that every moment in our life is time of need. There is not a day that I come to the throne of God where I do not thank him for the salvation that we have in Christ. Because I realize and I remember and I continually remind myself that there is nothing good that I bring to the cross. Nothing good. Even after living with Christ for 30 years, nothing good in my hands I bring. Still clinging to that cross. And finding grace and mercy in time of need. That is the type of king that he is. That is the spiritual needs that we have constantly in the Christian life. And how many Christians starve themselves for this? And we would desire maybe that God would just make us healthy and then leave us alone. You know that temptation. Maybe if you just work out stuff with my job. Maybe if you just work out stuff with my income or with my family or with my marriage, then all will be well. It won't be well. We have a need at a deep place that's not natural. It is a supernatural need that we all have. And there is one place and one place alone that God meets that. And it's before his throne, in the midst of his people, in the presence of his word. We are here eating. This morning. Feeding on God's word. Feeding on the fellowship of Christians. People think so low of these things and so high of the natural blessings of this world. Let us challenge ourselves to think of it the way that Christ thought of it, who refused to be an earthly king. And they were going to come and make him by force. Why? He's the Messiah. Let's make him the king. He's going to give us bread forever. That's all we need, right? If that was all we needed, then God should have left us in the Garden of Eden. 
He should have left us there to eat of all the trees, even the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and take from the tree of life. If all we needed was natural solutions, give us the tree of life, and we'll live in the garden forever, free food forever. But instead, God protected us by taking us out of the garden that we may not live forever with the presence of sin, lest our comforts being there, we see no need for a savior. Death, while it is an enemy, death, while it still hurts and still rips relationships to shreds, death for the Christian is mercy because on the other side is resurrection. This mortal, the apostle says, must put on immortality. This sinful flesh must be glorified. May it be far from our minds that God simply meet our natural desires, whether for food or for money or for relationship or for fame or our own glory. I started off this way. Those things seek our glory at the expense of God. That is not what we're made for. We are made for the glory of God alone. And Christ being an earthly king to provide bread for everybody would take the glory from God and give it to man. And say, the plan of salvation is all about you and me. No, my friends. The plan of salvation is about God's glory. He will save his people from their sins. And he will put his mercy on display. And he will put his judgment on display. And these are laudable. These are good things to glorify God for. They are not things to apologize for. They are not things to hide from. They are things to glorify God for. And I want to challenge us to do that in our lives. I want to challenge you as you evangelize those in your lives, as you find those who need to hear the gospel of Christ and be saved from their sins, give them Christ himself. Not an answer to their woes or perceived physical needs. Though that may come, sometimes it doesn't. Jesus in Luke 14 reminds us of this very thing. Following him, you may lose your family. You may lose father or mother or brother or sister. You may even lose your own life. These natural things, whether we feel it or not, are worth giving up for the supernatural food that doesn't perish. I want you to see it because it will come from Jesus' own mouth later in this chapter. Look over to me, if you will. Luke, or it's not Luke, sorry, John chapter 6. We're right here. I want you to see a connection that many don't really remember. Starting in verse 22 in Luke, or John chapter 6. I don't know why I keep saying Luke. That's not right. John chapter 6, verse 22. After Jesus walks on the water, that whole crowd follows him to the other side of the sea. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. 
Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor any of his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went into Capernaum seeking Jesus. This crowd who was just fed all of this bread and wanted to make Jesus king by force chased him down the next day. I don't remember that in Sunday school. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you do that? We saw all the boats. You didn't get on any of them. He walked across the water in the middle of the night. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say. He doesn't even answer the question. He says, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they were saying, they said to them, what must we do? To be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You want to know what the work of God is? Here it is. This is the work of God. That you believe in him who he has sent. And so they said to them, then what sign do you do? More bread. What sign do you do? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness every day. That's the implication. If you're really of God, you'll give us more bread. That's how God did it when they were wandering in the wilderness. More bread. This is a new day. More bread. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. They said to him, Sir, give us that bread. It's the same response that the woman at the well said. I want water that will never make me thirsty again. I don't want to come to this well. I just want everlasting, natural blessing. Water that will make me never thirsty again. Food that will make me never hungry again. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in its full form. What is the work of God? To believe on him that God sent that you may live. You may believe and live is the whole point of the gospel. The whole point of the gospel. Do not come to see what Christ can do for you. Come in service to Christ and watch his life work through every moment of yours. Let us not set our minds on the things of this earth. Let us set our minds on the things that proceed from the mouth of God. Let us not live on bread alone. Let us live on everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let us not seek temporal blessings alone. Temporal blessings are wonderful, but they are not promised at all points. Christians do starve at points. Christians do pass through famines and wars and sufferings and pestilences and plagues. Let us not preach a gospel to people that lies to them about the prophets of these things. The prophet, F, the prophet of following Christ is eternal life. And we approach that through natural deaths 
and twists and turns and trails that are often spotted with thorns and thistles. But the end is glorious, my friends. The end is glorious. And the blessing of God rests on those who endure in his gospel to the end, no matter the cost. Let us preach that gospel to our own hearts, our homes, and our town. May God be praised and gloried in his people this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful for Christ who has given us a salvation we could not achieve or attempt on our own. We thank you that in him we have life eternal, not just comfortable lives here. We pray that we set our hearts on eternal things, not on the stuff of this earth, for the stuff of this earth will one day pass away. May we not seek, Father, to make our lives just comfortable here, for that will, that will lull us into complacency. May we even learn from our brothers and sisters long past who sought ways to suffer for Christ. Prevent us from the extremities of such things on either side, whether to find in our natural life only comfort or only suffering. But Father, may we seek to walk the path that you have for us with joy. However difficult, however easy. May we never seek to glory ourselves but to seek only the glory that abides forever at your throne. We pray for these things, Father, and we know that they are far from our hearts naturally, but we thank you that your spirit has awakened us to this life. We pray for it for one another this morning. In your son's name, amen.